Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hello. I'm out of jokes to start episodes with. This is Cool People Did Cool Stuff, which kind of sounds like a joke name for a podcast anyway. Uh, But I rather like it. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. With me today on this journey is Alinda Sagata. Alinda, how are you? Doing good. I just ate a snack. Hell yeah. And you're an hour wiser than last time. <laughs> yeah, totally. Our producer is Sophie. Sophie, how are you? Eh, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, com- compared to like tooth pain recording, antibiotics, re- antibiotics recording is a breeze. Yeah, I feel that. As somebody who also is on antibiotics. <laughs> yeah. This podcast brought to you by amoxicillin. Chloride <laughs> 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 Z-Pack. Yeah. Fish antibiotics. Yeah, I mean, last Legal, week. Legal, but not for human last use. Last week, I couldn't hear out of my uh, right ear. This week, I mostly can. It's great. Yeah. To be clear, I don't believe either of us are on fish antibiotics, and I do not recommend them. Nope. Anyway, that's not even for legal reasons. I just feel guilty when I accidentally make a joke about bad advice. Our audio engineer is Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, Everyone Ian. say hi, Ian. What's up, Ian? Including you listening to your headphones in a public place, I want you to say hi, Ian. God hates a coward. Say it. All right, Ian, Ian, you're exempt from having to say hi, Ian, unless you want to. Our music was written for us by Unwoman. And today... We are talking about the Young Lords, the Puerto Rican socialist organization that is kicking ass and taking names in New York City in 1969-1970. They've just taken over a Methodist church and turned it into the People's Church for 11 days, which I said 13 last time because I wasn't looking at the script and I was coming up with numbers and I came up with the wrong one. They got a lot done for 11 days. I know. There's like multiple festivals of the oppressed that they managed to throw in 11 days. Totally. Could you imagine like... I would take more than 11 days to organize a festival of the oppressed right now. Uh, yeah. Good year. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, all right, we're getting ready for 2025's Festival of the Oppressed. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Everyone's got to check their schedules. <laughs> so, 
This action got them national attention and support, and their membership soared, especially and it brought in, again, more women. More than 600 new members came on, and this is an official membership organization as compared to some other things, right? Okay. They would take Puerto Rican people, and they would take both non-Puerto Rican black people and non-Puerto Rican Latinx folks from their neighborhoods. Um, overall, they skewed demographically Afro-Puerto Rican and English-speaking at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no value judgment in that. That's just what their demographics were. Yeah. Um, I think it, whatever. They'd already opened a Newark, New Jersey chapter by this point, and soon they opened some in the South Bronx, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Boston, the Lower East Side, and Philly. They lived communally. They ate free meals at dining halls. They had a whole building now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Women and men lived together and organized together and threw down together. And the women worked hard to fight chauvinism in the movement. They would specifically, this is the thing I didn't know until I researched this. They would call people out as male chauvinist pigs. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the first uses of that phrase, male chauvinist pig. And something I hadn't realized is that the men, men are pigs rhetoric within feminism doesn't come out of calling men animals. Like, it's not directly calling them the pig, the animal. It's that since the Black Panthers have started calling cops pigs, they're calling wow. men cops when You're they call people You're blowing my mind. Right? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're saying, you're being a cop right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, that makes a lot more sense. It just like it rings it rings well with me. <laughs> yeah. Be yeah. like you are the oppressor right now. You are yeah. oppressing. And it probably fucking stung more than being like cuz when you call men pigs you're like oh you're a pig you're you're gross and being overly yeah. sexual or whatever. Men yeah. are often like yeah I am that's just the way we are baby. Totally. Right. Bro chip. As compared to being like you are acting like a police officer. <laughs> Yeah. You know, which is not a nice thing to be called. And that helps get men get their shit together, um, as does a woman's caucus, as does an action that did not come up in my research, but you brought up. Okay. This but then I couldn't, I, I, I researched it online and I couldn't find it online, but. I found a little I, bit claiming that you this did? happened. Yeah, but only a little bit, like only a single reference. So you should say what you learned. Okay. I learned this when I went to the Bronx Museum and they had a. Uh, an exhibit all about the young lords and Mm -hmm. it was written in their paper that the women had gotten together and they decided if their demands would not be met where they were able to carry firearms although you're saying that they didn't really care well some people so i know i know it's like it's messy i think that they must have sometimes or something but okay and be treated as comrades uh instead of servants and you know like Mm -hmm. the way that traditionally their families taught them to treat women, there would be a sex strike. And, you know, this is also acting as if like the majority were straight, but that men would not be able to receive sex anymore from women until they got their shit together. Yeah. Which is which probably effective. I think is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently, I don't know if, if it went down for a long time or if it was put into effect, but it was definitely printed in the paper. It was definitely like warm. You've been warned is, yeah. is how it seemed in the paper. So the thing I ran across when I when I did more research after you told me this is that mm-hmm. 
I ran across like one line that was like in 1970, the women had a sex strike. Okay. Um, but I, I, I don't entirely know. And actually, it's interesting. I would trust, well, I would trust Palente more than I would trust a random article that I read yeah. or something else, or even a history book. Um, and so the thing about firearms is really interesting to me because I, there is going to be a point in the script when they kind of take up arms, right? Mm-hmm. And all these other times they're like rolling around with nunchucks. But I bet you that there were times in which they were armed and that just wasn't like fitting the narrative of the way that people want to mm-hmm. talk about things. And like, so I, I don't know, you know. Or perhaps um, it was like education and how to use firearms. Yeah. Might have been the vibe. Like, so I learned that from when I went to the museum. But a lot of what mm-hmm. I've learned is from a book called Palante that I encourage people to get. It's, um, I have it here, but no one's going to see it. It's called Voices and Photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, of the Young Lords. And it's a lot of interviews and also like uh, little, you know, essays that were written in the newspaper. So cool. Um, and one of the things that I read was talking about how they believed that how women members wanted to learn how to use firearms and not be treated like they weren't warriors. Yeah. So. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so they're doing all this. After the church, their numbers were up. Um, their numbers became about 35 to 40% women. And there were numerous openly gay members. Mm. And gay members had their own caucus as well. The Black Panthers paved their way on that one, openly stating their allegiance with the gay rights movement and specifically the Gay Liberation Front that had grown out of the Stonewall Uprising, which, yes, you can hear about on our episode about the Stonewall Uprising. <laughs> um, and, in fact... The Young Lords provided a personal guard to Sylvia Rivera, the trans he- one of the trans heroes from Stonewall, when she was facing death threats. And this is, it's not... She's also half Puerto Rican. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just wanted to give her a shout out. No, yeah, fucking totally. <laughs> and like, and so I will say that many Young Lords refused the assignment because they like were transphobic mm-hmm. and didn't understand what the fuck was up. Um, yeah. And they were like freaked out. There's still a long way to go. But... Other ones accepted it and were Sylvia Rivera's personal bodyguard were young lords and that fucking rules. Yeah. People with jobs gave up more than half their salaries to the group because it sounds a little bit culty at this point. Mm. No one, my my theory is no one ever gets anything done without getting a little bit close to the cult line. You shouldn't cross Uh the cult line, you know? Uh Uh-huh. But... If the cult line isn't even in sight, you might not be creating a community. It's real messy. Ah, interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the cultier things that they did is they did that Maoist self-criticism thing where you're supposed to like stand up and say all the stuff you did wrong to the whole crowd. Oh, I've never heard of this before. It's um, It was a big part of like, like the Cultural Revolution in China, which I don't know as much about as I would like to. This like Maoist self-criticism thing. And what's interesting... Actually, if you listen to the, the podcast Behind the Bastards, they talk about a lot of cults, and one of the things that comes up a lot is not Maoist self-criticism, but is this, like, stand up at a circle and admit why you're, like, bad and fell apart from, like, the group's rules or whatever. It's, like, mm. a a way you encourage group thinking and um, is, from my point of view, bad. Yeah. Yeah. And anyone who failed to do this was called a liberal. This is something that, like, I feel like liberals don't quite always realize is that like the left wing also calls liberals liberals in a negative way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like every now and then I'll say something's like liberal and people are like, fuck you, right winger. And I'm like, what? <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> it's during this period of growth that you start seeing the cracks that are later going to fuck it up, at least by the mm-hmm. convenient narrative that I'm drawing and have read in other sources. The New York lords were given full autonomy by the, quote, Central Committee of Chicago, right? Because it still had started in Chicago, even though it's bigger in New York. But New York is pretty sure that they should be the Central Committee and that the chapters shouldn't shouldn't have full autonomy, that the New York chapter should be in charge of all the other chapters, and that more discipline was needed. Um, And also, the Chicago newspaper wasn't coming out regularly enough. What are you all doing? You better get on that. Hmm. So the, the New York chapter starts getting kind of controlling. Mm -hmm. And then another thing to understand about their politics, and I I try to avoid like, let's talk about Marx, right? But along with the Black Panthers, the Young Lords were a break from traditional Marxism in that they identified the lumpen proletariat as the revolutionary subject, which means that I have to break down really quickly Marx's ideas about classes, in which you have the proletariat, who are industrial workers in the city. They all, and Marx thinks that these are the bee's knees. They're the best. Everyone else sucks, according to Marx, right? Then you got the bourgeoisie, a class whom no one who is alive can spell correctly. <laughs> and yeah, they are, I still, Bo, Urgy, O-I-Z. Oh my God. I, it's, I, thank you, spell check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It took me a very long time to wrap my head around hierarchy. More importantly, thanks. Talk to speech, talk to text, speech apps for words you can't spell. Oh, that's you clever. That's a phone, good idea. Bourgeoisie. <laughs> like you even think about it. <laughs> the bourgeoisie are the owning class. They don't work for a living. This is their distinguishing characteristic. Instead, they own stuff for a living. Mm-hmm. Definition of capitalism in this case being roughly the access to capital being how you make money rather than work, right? Um, and then you've got two other weird classes. You have the petty bourgeoisie, who are like the small business owners. They're not running the show, but their relationship to capital is different from that of a worker. Marxists generally don't like them. And then you have the lumpen proletariat, who are objectively the coolest. Uh, Marx does not agree by this with this. These are the unemployed and the thieves and the beggars and the people whose work is illegal, like sex workers. Mm. The, the criminal class. And... Marx doesn't like them, right? But the Young Lords and the Black Panthers do. Mm. Personally, I like to think that Marx's classes are like he's writing a role-playing game instead of paladins and wizards. You have petty bourgeoisie and the lumpen proletariat and shit. And so from this point of view, we clearly need everyone. Maybe not the regular bourgeoisie, I don't know. But you just clearly can't have a party of only thieves or only wizards. It's not as much fun. There's my class unity. Statement of the day. Oh, God. Anyway, the Black Panthers like the Lumpen Proletariat. The Young Lords like them. The New York Young Lords claim to like them. But part of what they're mad at Chicago about, because the Chicago clearly comes out of them. They are, they come from the criminal class. The Young Lord comes. Yeah, of course. This was not a bunch of workers sitting around being like, man, I don't like how the boss is treating me. You like how the boss is treating me? It's a bunch of car thieves who are like, Let's stand up against racism and try and get everyone some health care. You know? Yeah. And the New York Lords don't quite have a, quite the same background as relates to that. Um, and so part of why they're mad at Chicago is that Chicago is still too criminal and gang-like and they're not good proper revolutionaries. Mm. So by May 1970, they sever ties from the Young Lords Organization of Chicago. 
and they become the Young Lords Party. It is very likely that this split was orchestrated by COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program of the FBI. Oh, wow. It was almost certainly encouraged by them. The, The disagreements existed, but COINTELPRO existed to make those disagreements grow, right? Mm -hmm. Back in Chicago, uh, Cha-Cha is taking it hard. Um, He was close friends with Fred Hampton, who had just been murdered, and now he's getting told he's too gangster for the group he turned from a gang into an organization. Uh, But he keeps it civil, and no fights break out between the cities. Um, So it's it's a break, but it's not a war, right? Okay. But They've got all these political things brewing. There's all of these fractures that are starting to form. It doesn't stop them from doing really cool shit. One of the cool things they do is they get into a fight with a long-standing friend of the podcast, tuberculosis. (laughs) For anyone who's just learning now, (laughs) what happened when I started making this podcast is I started reading a lot more history books. And I started learning that everyone dies of tuberculosis. That's just how you die. Wow. Everyone, if you're in a history book, you either get killed by the state or you get killed by tuberculosis. <laughs> you forgot the third or your, or, or your lover. What? There's oh. tuberculosis, the government, or your lover. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. That's the trifecta. There's no other yeah. way. No, I, I can't see how else I could die. Um as long as it's not some combo move. Ooh. Uh, Ooh. You'd be, like, you'd be living a really weird life. The, the, COINTELPRO really infiltrator is like coughing into handkerchiefs. and Yeah. Yeah. Plus, I don't know about that government thing. That seems, that seems uh, not, not, not for cause for you. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be. You would be very far from that. My plan is to not be killed by any of these things. Yeah, let's all. go with that. Um. Yeah. So tuberculosis, or TB as it's called by its friend, friends, <laughs> or consumption when it's out at a goth night. We talked about this in our Alan Hart episode. The first ever known trans man to receive gender-affirming surgery saved millions of lives by revolutionizing the way that public screening was done for tuberculosis decades before today's story, mm-hmm. um, specifically by using x-rays to, to screen ahead of time. What is TB? Well, it's a bacterial infection. It sits around latently. Sometimes it pops up with symptoms and shit. It kills about half of its victims if you actually get the symptoms. For those keeping track at home, that's about a 5% mortality rate overall, which is brutally high. Today, we have antibiotics, and no one dies of it anymore. Just kidding. It kills a lot of people still, mostly in other parts of the world. Uh, It killed 1.5 million people in 2020. It is the number one deadliest infectious disease after COVID-19. It's the number one preventable infectious disease. Preventable with vaccines, treatment with antibiotics, um, and screening, things like that. Um, so everyone who dies of it is murdered by capitalism, from my point of view, because it, you don't have to die from it, it, except for access to care. So the Young Lords, they go to war against two of the biggest enemies of this show, capitalism and fucking tuberculosis. Let's go. Yeah. It's a real problem in the poor areas of New York City, thanks to stale air and overcrowding and lack of access to screening. Mm. So in addition to -to door-to-door lead poisoning tests, they start testing people for TB, which involves an x-ray machine. 
So they send a petition around, and it gets them use of one machine, but it's a stationary machine. They want a mobile unit. They want like a van with an x-ray machine in it. Like the x-ray van that goes around the city already, but is inaccessible to poor people of color. One book I read says it was inaccessible because it was it operated from 12 to 6 p.m. and didn't accommodate working people's schedules. But the guy who stole the van, um, I listened to an interview with him. Oh, spoiler alert. Wait, steal the van. What? Um, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, did we skip a chapter? What's happening here? <laughs> we'll get to that. The guy who steals the van later in the story, he says in an interview that it was inaccessible because it only went to white neighborhoods. And that feels a little bit more truthful. Once again, giving a shout out to the the thief, the thief class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so on June 17th in 1970, they steal the van. They unfurl a Puerto Rican flag on it and they drive it off. Uh, Sick. They tipped off the press ahead of time to make sure everyone saw them steal this van. <laughs> <laughs> People don't do like crime like they used to. For better yeah, and worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, they parked it. They were really subtle. They parked it across the street from their office. <laughs> and then... Announced free testing for everyone. And I think the techs who worked in the van were like entirely fine with it. They're just like, whoa, cool. This is the coolest thing that's happened to me ever. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've been like, I'm so bored. <laughs> and now I'm part of some like crazy shit on the news. And I still just get to help people for a living. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Within hours of stealing the van, they won. The director of health of the area agreed to let them keep the van and run it on the city's dime 12 hours a day, every day. Wow. The first day, they tested hundreds of people. Wow. Yeah. And around that time, well, before we move them to the South Bronx, we should move everyone to these killer deals about stuff. Job opportunities. You could go become an Irish cop. Um, so many options. Here, listen to these options. Don't press the forward 15 seconds button. That has no influence on anything from my point of view. Here's some ads. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back from those enlightening ads. I try to come up with something clever, but I got nothing. So I'll just tell you about when they moved to the South Bronx. Because there's yet another health epidemic for them to deal with because they really just fucking did it all. Like, I I can't get over it. Also, like, the number of issues that this community was facing, like, as it just, like, really boggles my mind being like wow i grew up in that city yeah and like these are all people like my parents age you know yeah your parents age like people like talk about lead poisoning and tuberculosis and yeah streets and for sure yeah and a lot of like how the bronx was burning you Mm -hmm. know a lot of like faulty electricity and just you know like a lot of issues like that for sure Is that what yeah. was the Bronx burning because of faulty electricity? There was like a lot of safety hazards, but also a lot of like some lords that were setting, sh- you know, just like letting yeah their buildings burn or being the reason why their buildings were burning. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of my, my family definitely talked a lot about these issues. Okay. Is your f- I don't know whether you want to say this in error. Is your family from East Harlem or is it from South Bronx or is it somewhere else? Uh, they're actually from Chelsea. Okay. Yeah. They grew up in the Chelsea projects. Okay. You know, my they were born, my dad was born and my aunt were, was born in Puerto Rico, but came mm-hmm. over when they were very young. My grandfather came over and was like working at first and then 
was able to pay for everybody to come. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I hadn't re- as a white outsider in New York City, I hadn't realized the degree to which Puerto Rican um identity shaped the city and all different parts of the city, you know. Um and like the Lower yeah. East Side like doesn't even really necessarily come out much in the story even though they had a Young Lords had a chapter in Lower East Side even though that was a Puerto Rican neighborhood, you know, yeah. at this point, which heavily influences all of the like hippie culture stuff that was happening in that area. Oh, show. totally. Yeah, like talking to my dad when I would mention like hanging out in the Lower East Side or Tom- Tompkins Square Park or squatting or mm-hmm. anything, you know, to him, he was just like, oh yeah, me and my friends like did all that shit, but we were cooler than you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. And he was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I'm just some like, yeah. But you know, you think about the uh, the New Yorkian, the New Yorkian Poets Cafe, mm-hmm. like that's in the Lower East Side still. Um, I don't know how, but I'm so glad that it's still with us. Yeah. Um, and that was born out of this movement, you know. Yeah. Is New Yorkian a name of an identity for New York Puerto Ricans? Is that the? Yes. So a lot of the people that you're talking about who are, you know joining the young lords at this point who mm-hmm. don't speak spanish for example like that would be a really great uh representation of like a new yorican although of course there are new yorkans that do mm-hmm. but it's like a very specific like doesn't have extremely strong ties to the island like even my dad who was born in puerto rico felt like he wasn't puerto rican enough and then also he was an outsider in his own city Okay. So it's like the they you know this idea that you don't quite fit into anything because you're always a little bit of an outsider. So New Yorkian was born. Yeah. I mean that makes a lot of sense to me. I feel like the uh diasporic identity is like this thing that often grows in New York or at least I know that like the diasporic identity of like Jews I um mm. or Jewish people like grew in New York City in a lot of ways uh, as an identity that was separate from anything else it was like this is the diaspora is like who we are i don't know whether diaspora is a yeah. word that people use in this context or not oh definitely okay yeah yeah and also there's a lot of like longing for like you know when you talked about how the young lords were teaching puerto rican history like mm-hmm. that was something that was i mean to this day is so hidden from anybody who is puerto rican or new Yorkian, like just this feeling that you come from a place that is so foreign to you and you you want to learn about it but it it's been hidden or kept away yeah yeah it, it like because america has this like public school systems has this like one monolithic educational idea of what we teach people mm-hmm. you know and it's just like rather than teach people puerto rican history we teach people about like paul revere or whatever the fuck you know like yeah. um and it's just interesting because, like, a really high percentage of people who live in the United States are not descended from the Revolutionary War fighters, yeah. you know? Yeah. Or have at least other, just whatever. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I guess I should start a podcast where I talk about history that isn't talked <laughs> about as much. Sophie, well, you want to help me do that? This entire podcast is just propaganda and it's you just advertising for your own show on your own show. It's incredible. The self-promotion is awesome. 
Um, I haven't worked the name of my book into any of these scripts. No. I'm very proud of that. Okay. So, they've just stolen a van. (laughs) That makes it very, like, not much happened. They just changed the way. Go ahead. I just love how much they, like, play chicken with the city. There's like, yeah, of course we could like go to jail for a really long time for a Grand Theft Auto or something. Or yeah. maybe they'll just give us what we want. I know. I know. I can't imagine any of this working and then it keeps working. Yeah. Yeah. So they go to the South Bronx. Uh, or rather, a branch opens in the South Bronx. And I don't know if the, how many individuals are specifically moving, right? And there's a problem that needs to be dealt with in the South Bronx. Heroin. Mm. Uh, the state wasn't doing a very good job of helping people who are addicted. Instead, it criminalized people. Um, the South Bronx in spring 1970 had the highest heroin addiction rate in the world. 15% of people who lived there were addicted to heroin, according to one number I heard. Other numbers that I heard included the South Bronx had a mortality rate 50% higher than the rest of the country. Syphilis and wow. gonorrhea, six and four times the national average. And overdose was the leading cause of death among adolescents and young adults. Oh, wow. And this is the kind of thing that we see reflected more later in the opioid crisis on a like wider scale, right? Mm-hmm. So the first thing that the young lords did, they're like, all right, we're going to deal with heroin addiction. That's what our community needs. That's what we're going to do. They got an apartment. They cleaned it up nice. And they started screening drug users for commitment to sobriety. And then two young lords would keep watch over. They just set up a detox center. Just a, or a cold turkey center, really. Yeah, this yeah, is their yeah. first first attempt. Two young lords would keep watch over the detoxing people for 24 hours a day and help them quit cold turkey. Then each person in recovery was assigned a mentor who was available to them 24 hours a day for the next six months. Damn. They also robbed drug dealers and scared them off the block, which got the mafia mad at them. But they somehow had enough power that they didn't get any... No one got killed as a result of this that I'm aware of. This is so wild to me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I it's, keep it's, waiting for, like, when is someone going to get assassinated by one of the many powerful forces who don't want change to happen? I, I am not aware of it happening. Yeah. I, like... And I, I, one of the things that often underlies a lot of history that doesn't get left in, like, is people working with the mafia or, like, mm-hmm, all these different mm-hmm. radicals, like, working with different power structures, right? And that's, like, often left out because it's not as, like, sexy or it's criminal yeah, yeah, or yeah. whatever, right? So probably they're doing something that is making the mafia not attack them. But I believe the mafia is mad at them. So I believe that that something is not working with the mafia. Okay. If I were to guess, and I expect I'm wrong, uh, it probably is just literally like, we are scary and there's a lot of us and we are tied in with the Panthers and we are tied in with them up against the wall, motherfuckers. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The city is full of angry revolutionaries. That's my best guess, but I don't yeah. know. You know, I know at around the same time, for example, the up against the wall motherfuckers are like scaring off mafia hits by having more guns than the people trying to kill them. You know, but yeah, so they're robbing drug dealers and scaring them off the block, which is also really hard to morally understand in a situation that predates the war on drugs. Right. Because Mm -hmm. right now, during the war on drugs. When people talk about like, oh, we're going to like 
go fuck up all the drug dealers. You're like, oh, you're going to go fuck up drug users who are like fucked by society. Congratulations. You're the same as the fucking war on drugs. Yeah. But when we're not in that context, I don't fucking know. Just like straight up. I don't know. You know? Yeah. But the cold turkey approach wasn't going to work with everyone. The medical problems that people were facing were bigger than just heroin. So they needed something more. They needed something bigger, like like a hospital. (laughs) (laughs) The South Bronx had one hospital, Lincoln Hospital. It was built in 1898, the same year that the U.S. stole Puerto Rico from the Spanish. Uh, This is the place that I was saying gets called the butcher shop. It's the wrong Mm -hmm. leg amputated whoops shop with lead paint for the children to eat. And it's the kind of place where the ER doesn't do triage. There's no translators on staff, no accommodations for non-English speaking patients. But the best part, and this is not sarcasm, the actual good part, was that some reformers had set up a fairly groundbreaking mental health clinic there that emphasized talk therapy and actually hearing patients out. Oh, wow. So it's kind of a battleground spot already. In March 1969, before the Lords arrived, the Lords did a lot and they deserve a a ton of the credit. But by tying into existing infrastructures and working with other groups. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. In March 1969, the mental health clinic had taken itself over. The workers, mostly people of color, had seized the building and kicked out the director and his upper staff. The Yeah, the doctors, wow. including white doctors, which is most of them, this is the late 60s, uh, supported the action and kept working. And they held it for three days, and the Black Panthers uh, ran security and brought supporters. This is before the Panther 21 trial took the wind out of the New York City Panthers. just would like to say that I am really loving these stories of, like, doctors standing with their staff. Mm-hmm. And like standing up to administration and their bosses, yeah. it's really, I, I encourage all the doctors out there who might be listening to do that. <laughs> yeah. Because we really need it. Yeah. This particular takeover was broken when the city, I don't even think the administrator is the hospital, the city was like any doctors who practice here will lose their licenses. But the action did get a bunch of workers had been fired, um, and it got the fired workers unfired, and Mm. the director was transferred out. So it was, like, successful to some degree, right? By 1970, some of the workers there were young lords themselves. And some of these workers set up a, a complaint table for workers and patients in the ER. 12 hours a day, they were there at this table. On weekends, they were there 24 hours a day. Wow. And they kept getting kicked out and they kept coming right back in. There's like interviews you can hear about like the people like kind of being friends with the security guards. It's like, oh, I'm kicking you out again. And they're like, right, I'm going to be right back in. And like, all right, have fun, you know. <laughs> so they set up this complaint table. They get 2,000 complaints in a month. Wow. And they just start acting on them. Like all the ones that they can. They just direct action, get the goods, install privacy screens in the bathrooms. They move trash off the street outside and into the director's office because this is what you do with trash. Whoa. Yeah. The the medical staff who were part of this organization, I think this is Atrum, but I'm not not 100% certain the larger organization that's doing this. Uh The medical staff just start doing triage in the ER, like when they're not at work. They're just like, we're triaging. Fuck this. An ER needs triage. Uh, which um, I did not learn this word until I was an adult. Triage is when you determine which patients are the most injured and who needs medical care most immediately. So 
They put pressure on administration for better care for the workers. But there was a wall. They couldn't get anything systemic fixed. They could only... Like, Band-Aids, people are like, oh, it's just a Band-Aid. Like, Band-Aids are great. They stop bleeding. You can keep infection out. Like, Yeah. But they don't address systemic issues. So they did what they had to do with a really interesting security culture method. On July 13th, 1970, 150 young lords met in an apartment and locked themselves in so that no infiltrators could get out and give anyone a heads up. Because they knew they were infiltrated. It's the fucking, it's 1970, you know? Uh-huh. And so not all of them knew the plan going in. They all get told the plan, but they can't call out. At 3.30 a.m., they pile into a U-Haul and a bunch of cars. They backed up to the hospital loading dock. They opened the doors. They stormed the hospital with nunchucks. Oh. Uh, this episode brought to you by nun- nunchucks. I know. <laughs> How cool they are. <laughs> I know. For some reason, most retellings leave the nunchucks out. That's a mistake. Hell yeah, nunchuck radicals. You get it. Okay, I'll tell my one nunchuck story. Please. Oh, yeah. I'm like 22 or something, and I'm like living in the basement of this house with some hipsters, and they have this party, and I'm avoiding it. I'm hanging out in the basement. And at one point, someone comes down. At this time, I'm like, all I'm doing is like studying martial arts and trying to stop a war and all that shit. And they come down, and they're like, Magpie, this guy won't leave, and he's harassing people. He's like harassing this woman. You have to kick him out. And I'm like, okay. And so I'm like, in my my sleeping dress and I just like walk upstairs with a pair of nunchucks and I'm like the weird kid in a dress from the basement who hasn't been at the party and I just like walk up I think I have a beard at the time and I'm just like hey you better leave and the guy's like I'm already gone (laughs) and he runs away I don't know how to use nunchucks I do not know how to use nunchucks at this point in my life I just have them I mean, it's definitely a, a power move of like, who's going to assume that you don't know how to use them? Yeah. You know, like if you're pulling them out, just visually you'd be like, that person knows how to use those. Yeah. Like um, <laughs> bluffing is a very effective. Totally. As we learned from the young lords, like sometimes you just yeah. got to try it. <laughs> Storm a hospital with nunchucks. What could go wrong? Yeah. So they secure the entrances, they barricade shit, they still let workers and patients in and out of the building, just they're controlling uh-huh. it. They set up screening clinics for tuberculosis and lead poisoning and uh, anemia. Um, they set up a daycare and a classroom, because one of their whole mm-hmm. things is that they believe that kids should get childcare while their sole caretaker is in the hospital. It's wild, I know. They hung up a banner, Welcome to the People's Hospital, and a Puerto Rican flag. They hadn't tipped off the hospital workers, or it wouldn't have worked, right? Uh-huh. But the hospital workers were down. The physicians backed them. They hated working for the butcher shop because they became doctors to help people. Yeah. Even the chief administrator was like, well, I mean, they kind of got a point. Like, Wow. No one likes working at the butcher shop, you know? Except like Sweeney Todd or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, that would be really like that I'm reference. Sobbing. Oh, thank you, so, Magpie. <laughs> you did that one for you, apparently. apparently. So they, <laughs> so they call I'm for a press laughing. conference. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was so perfectly timed. <laughs> so they call for a press conference, and they explain themselves to the press, and they give their demands, which is like, 
door-to-door healthcare, better pay for workers, daycare for patients and workers, hurry up and build a new hospital. Mm. I did not find a name for this action. I assume it was the Lincoln Offensive or the Hospital Offensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They held it for about 12 hours. The negotiations with the police were going very badly. Uh, Undercovers were trying to infiltrate into the hospital. So, So they left. And rather than letting themselves get mass arrested, they put on white coats and slipped out with the doctors, covered by supporters from inside and outside. Yeah. Oh. And once the cops realized they'd been duped, they combed the area for the lords. But people in the neighborhoods took them in. Only two participants out of 150, 200 participants got fucking caught. Wow. Good fucking odds. I would take those odds. Seriously. Nothing changed immediately. Then, three days later, a patient named Carmen Rodriguez died during an abortion at the hospital. The resident, a student doctor, didn't look at her chart and her pre-existing conditions and performed the wrong kind of abortion. And then when she responded badly, doubled down on mistreating her. And a few days later, July 19th, 1970, she died of negligence. Oh, wow. This is something I've read about. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking heartbreaking. Like, I I don't know. Just especially the the doubling down and shit, especially like. I mean, there's also just a really painful history of sterilization of Puerto Rican women. Um, And. Just to, and it was a part of what like the women of the Young Lords would talk about in mm-hmm. when they would talk about the women's movement and women's liberation, is they would make a very clear distinction between upper class women's liberation and how like the Young Lord women, of course, you know, stood for abortion rights, but they also were like, we have to be very clear about our experience of you know, being forcefully sterilized, like a lot of yeah. Puerto Rican women getting sterilized in, um, who worked in factories and just without their knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a part of the history uh, and it's just such a recent history, yeah. you know, of Puerto Rican women. Yeah. No, it's something that I didn't really understand when I first started doing some of this research about like, um, you know, I was doing... Well, now I feel self-conscious about it, but I did an episode about, about the Jane Collective. Okay, Sophie? Uh-huh. Um, that you can go listen to. <laughs> oh, it's and, so fun. <laughs> and one of the things that I didn't realize going into that research was how I had only read about the, um, you know, the Panthers and, and Black liberationists had very complicated relationships with abortion rights. Um, mm-hmm. because, and the pill. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because they're like, we're trying to avoid a cultural genocide. We yes. want to, like, freedom to reproduce was what more of them were fighting for as compared yes. to more white women were fighting for freedom to control, to not reproduce. And any logical look at it is, well, we want bodily autonomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, but childcare like, goes into it as well because from what I read, like, women in the Young Lords would talk about how working class people deserve to be able to have children. And mm-hmm. that include that means that we will need to set up community childcare, you know, because that is the only way that we can, that if you're not incredibly wealthy, it, they were just saying it, it shouldn't be a barrier to be, to starting a family. Yeah. Which, you know, yeah. So it's just, it's a really, 
yeah, it's this painful part of it, it. It just really moves me that there was so much like mind blowing growth and like just what these people are experiencing, you know, like so quickly within a generation. Yeah. Well, well, that's an awkward place that I have to stick an ad transition. <laughs> but I do. So here's some ads. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we're back. And yeah, we're talking about how uh, Carmen Rodriguez died um, at the hospital three days after the takeover. And so this led to the most enduring and wide-reaching legacy of the Young Lords, um, HRUM, the radical group of medical professionals that the Young Lords are part of. They draft a new document, and they call it the Patient's Bill of Rights. And it says, you deserve to be treated respectfully, to have your treatment explained, that you can refuse treatment, that you can see your chart, that people deserve door-to-door preventative care, that people can pick their doctors, that you should get free food with your care, that there should be daycare, and that healthcare should be free. This is obviously that not... sense to me. <laughs> I know. You look at that and you're like, that, yeah, I'm in, like... This is not the patient's bill of rights we have today in the U.S., um, specifically okay. the, the free stuff part didn't really <laughs> yeah. survive. Yeah, still working on that. But some of this other stuff, I have always taken for granted. I mean, I'd, yeah. I didn't, I don't want to talk about my own family history too much. Um, but it's like, it, it, it makes sense to me that, of course, you get to have your treatment explained. Of course, you can refuse treatment. Of course, you can see your chart. Like, of course you can pick your doctor. Why would, I mean, I'd, yeah. again, complications around financial barriers. But it, of course you can refuse treatment. It's like such a clear example of that, that looking back, you're like, what do you mean? Why would yeah. anyone ever have thought it was okay to sterilize someone without their consent? Like, yeah. how is that not yeah, the same that's as not shooting treatment. someone on the street? Yeah. <laughs> that's called something else. Yeah. So they start pushing for this Bill of Rights. Um, and one thing that I find so fascinating about this story is that, you know, the Young Lords aren't reformists. They believe in a socialist revolution. But by mm-hmm. not coming to the table to beg for scraps, but by demanding everything, they accomplished more reform than reformists tend to. Mm. Which I would say, keep in mind, reformists. You should pretend to be socialist revolutionaries if you want reform. Make it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> So they do this, but they're still, they haven't gotten their health, their, their harm reduction clinic, which they haven't called that yet, but leads mm. to that kind of framing. So they have a better idea than their cold turkey clinic. Uh, not that the other day it was bad. It just didn't work for everyone. They got Lincoln to sponsor a drug detox center. They succeeded by asking nicely. Just kidding. <laughs> On November 6th, 1970, They occupied the sixth floor of one of the buildings of the hospital and set it up with the help of doctors into a detox facility. Wow. They're like, we're back. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 15 people were arrested. So then other other people came back the next day and they set it up again. And this time it stuck. This gets called the first harm reduction clinic. And they used a novel approach in which addiction was seen as a social problem and not as individual weakness. Oh, wow. Um, soon they're treating 600 people a week at this clinic. And it, <laughs> and it starts as a methadone clinic and becomes an acupuncture clinic. And it lasted for eight years. It outlasts the young lords. And it ends up staffed by many people who'd been through the treatment themselves. And is this, so this is the beginning of NADA acupuncture. Please explain. Okay. I do not know what NADA, N-A-D-A stands for. I will mm-hmm. just say that. NADA detox. No, wait, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> it's something that I've, it's like ear acupuncture that I've okay. received when I was like 
um, you know, like they used to do it at the drop-in center mm-hmm. um, when I was like a young homeless teenager. And it's, I didn't know that this was created by the young lords or that this is, you know, the um, treatment yeah. was like formed with the young lords. And it was like, how do we bring accessible, uh, effective acupuncture to working people or lower class people? Yeah. I am. I believe that that is the case, that this is, these are the pioneers of doing that in the United States. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just fucking did everything. I actually didn't end up writing into the script more about how the Patients of Bill of Rights developed out of what they did. There's so much that I didn't get to, you know, it's like, yeah. I, I didn't get to follow these threads as far as I want, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, let's kind of talk about their decline, unfortunately. But they have so much lasting impact. So, whatever. If you ride high for two years and then burn out and change everything along the way, so it fucking goes. And we can learn from them. Yeah. So, these two years are kind of the high point of the Young Lords. COINTELPRO is fucking with them really hard. Uh, They found an easy target in the culture of obsessive discipline and self-criticism and central authority that was... I think building and growing, but I could be wrong. That could be the read of stuff I'm reading. One of the central leaders, Philippe Luciano, Mm -hmm. he's practically the face of the group. He was demoted after cheating on his wife, um, who was one of the other leaders. They had set really strict rules about who who could talk to the press. And so a COINTELPRO agent pretended to be one of the Bronx leaders speaking to the press. Like, hey, I'm this guy and I'm speaking to the press. And then, so then the other leaders are so mad that this guy spoke to the press, even though they have strict rules about who can speak to the press and he wasn't on the approved list. But that wasn't him. Yeah. But so he's in trouble. And, oh, and the thing that he supposedly spoke to the press about was about how Philippe had been demoted because he was a male chauvinist with unclear politics. So they're like stirring up the shit, right? Which is like on his Wikipedia page. Because I looked it up. Oh, yeah. I thought he's a male chauvinist who was, Yeah. Yeah, like the quote. Um, so it's interesting to know. Yeah. Where this is coming from. Um, yeah, I mean, like, and he overall, COINTELPRO likes to find existing cracks and expand them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so you can look at that two ways. We could be like, well, we're vulnerable to federal infiltration if we have sexists, which is true. Mm-hmm. You can also look at that as we're vulnerable to um, federal, we're vulnerable to this shit if we're so quick to well, I don't know get into murky waters but like you know we're so quick yeah, to like yeah, get yeah. mad at everyone about these things and we have so many controls about all of these things you know and so it's like demoting a leader because he's sexist is not bad but the way it was handled was manipulated by the feds most likely uh, within a month he left the organization that he'd started or had a hand in starting yeah things start to get darker on October 17th 1970 the young lord Julio Roldan. He's found it hanging in a cell in the tombs. Um, and he's one of eight, quote, suicides that year in the tombs, one of whom had somehow fractured his own skull while hanging himself, uh, if you believe the police, which I don't. So when Julio died, a thousand people came to his viewing. At his funeral march, the onlookers chanted, and this chant rules, Fuego, fuego, fuego. Los Yankees quieren fuego. 
fire, fire, fire. The Yankees want some fire. Whoa. <laughs> Which is hard as fuck. Yeah. They're like, oh, you want <laughs> you want some fucking smoke, huh? Yeah. Wow. So it's at this point in the narratives that I've read that they pick up the gun more literally. Okay. The funeral stops for a second viewing at that Methodist church they'd once occupied with nothing but nun trucks and community support. They go into the church. They open the casket. Alongside his body is an arsenal of guns. In the casket? <laughs> yeah, that's how they hit it. Yeah, that's how they got into the church. Whoa. Um, they stuffed his casket full of, uh, full of weapons. And they use it to occupy the church. Their first and foremost demand was an independent investigation into Julio Roldan's death. Mm -hmm. The other demands were let us set up a legal defense center here, and also the city needs to let clergymen visit people in prison and investigate prison conditions. And so a diverse group of clergy took the demand to the city. The city was like, you know, fuck you. So then 18 clergy members joined the armed occupation because they were like, well, the city's not listening to us. You're the only way to get anything fucking done. Yeah. And I started this off by being like, oh, they're getting this darker. It's during the decline. I feel like I almost, I feel kind of bad using this as like, because it's an escalation, but it's not, I am not putting moral judgment on this particular choice and escalation. Yeah. Right. They weren't trying to go down in a blaze of glory and they started negotiations. Older women from the neighborhood secreted out the guns in pieces, basically, like, because they were like, wow. we're going fucking down. We don't want to all get murdered. So like, yeah. Piece by piece, all the guns get disappeared. Negotiations picked up. The city gave in and started an independent investigation into the death of Julio Roldan. And the independent report was was clear. Julio did hang himself, mm. and, at least according to this investigation. In 27 pages, some excerpted in the New York Times, it said basically, and I paraphrase, he killed himself because the tomb is, the tomb is a fucking nightmare pit that drives people to suicide. Mm. And mainstream news articles basically were saying like, yeah, sometimes suicide is murder. This is such a case. You put someone in this terrible of a situation, you are killing yeah. them, even if even if Julio most likely hanged himself. I bet that one who cracked his own skull didn't fucking hang himself. Yeah, that doesn't sound like it. They held the church for two months uh, until December 1970. It was a year after the last time they held the church, you know? And, it, and they did their thing there. They fed people. They offered free legal help. Radical priests started showing up and doing stuff there. But the organization started to to decline after this. They followed a familiar course, to quote author Johanna Fernandez. The movements were on the path of decline. Others saw mounting state repression as a reason to embrace the right to self-defense within their relatively small groups, which they confused with the defense of the masses in their communities. Amid the disorientation and siege mentality produced by state repression, radicals became somewhat isolated from their communities. They began to see themselves as enlightened actors. Before long, they began to substitute the painstaking task of grassroots mobilization with heroic acts of sacrifice taken on behalf of, quote, the people. The central leadership had a closed retreat just for itself to figure out what was going wrong, why things were getting bad, and they decided that the answer is that they need to centralize more power. They decided at the retreat that the social services move was the wrong one, and instead they should focus on leading a revolution to free Puerto Rico. And basically are like, if you're real revolutionaries, this is what you care about, not this volunteerism, which means we're shifting over to fundraising, and now that's what we're going to do here in the United States is fundraise and relocate organizers to Puerto Rico. 
And the wow. rank and file of the young lords aren't really excited about this. Um, and actually, I think some of it probably has to do with some of what you're talking about, like New York and identity and the yeah. disconnect from the island. Yeah. Very. I mean, I'm sure some of them had connection to the island, you know, but definitely strange move to go yeah. far away and then try to free people over there who could should probably if they're going to free yeah. themselves, they should probably free themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So their membership starts to decline. Uh-huh. It didn't help that they got really paranoid about COINTELPRO, which is not their fault. That is literally the purpose of COINTELPRO. Totally. And they started to purge people without evidence, especially people who were critical of this new change in focus. Mm. So they dropped from 1,000 members to 200 members and not very long at all. They were not well received in Puerto Rico. They showed up in fatigues and berets, and this didn't go over as a powerful symbol of working class militancy. It just confused people. The Nationalist Party that they showed up to help didn't really like them. Most of the independence movements at the time there were rich and white. Oh, wow. And they also, white within the Puerto Rican context, probably not yeah, yeah. in the United States context, well, the mainland. And also they were like, buds, you can't just show up out of nowhere and tell us you're going to free us. And they were outsiders. They knew how to organize in New York City really well. On the island, they met with little success. Yeah. They did do stuff. They did, it was earnest. By June 1971, two of the three New York City offices shut their doors. They switched ideological focuses again. And this time they switched to a workerist attitude, meaning the lumpen proletariat, the thieves and stuff. Yeah. They're no longer the shit. So now we're all the, the workers. But there's a problem here. Being a young lord was a full-time 24-7 commitment, which means workers hadn't joined. It was yeah. the unemployed or the soon-to-be unemployed. Students, youth, and criminals were primarily who the Young Lords recruited from. So they didn't get workers. They just lost lumpen. So they went out and tried to get jobs in industry to go organize people, which kind of went over like showing up in Puerto Rico. Yeah. They got more rigid and dogmatic, and they spiraled. They tried to solve it in 1972 by having a 40-day course of Marxist study in which they discussed and read Marx for six hours a day and tried to out-revolutionary each other. This further alienated them from everyone. No. <laughs> I know. I know. And it's like, I'm sure there's another read of this. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like... Also dealing with immense pressure and like... Yeah. Like, like yeah. it's so easy for us to be like, and Cointelpro was happening. It's like, they didn't know. Cointelpro wasn't a thing that people right. knew, you know? Right. When it's well, they had just too. learned, but... Uh-huh. Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. But the paranoia and, yeah. yeah. So they tried to solve their further alienation from everyone by centralizing the authority from a central leadership to a central leader, a woman named Gloria Fontanez. And then they kicked out all the people who had gone to Puerto Rico because the people who had gone to Puerto Rico were like, hey, this isn't working. We mm -hmm. shouldn't do this. Um, but central leadership was like, nope, you've got to stay the course. Some of the leadership flew down there and barged in and yelled at everyone for betraying the movement by, by betraying their authority and called them the enemies of the people. The Young Lords Party changed their name to Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization, um, which isn't so catchy. They demoted their central leader for being too petty bourgeoisie. And that's kind of the tailspin of the New York chapter, as far as I can tell. Chicago... Mm -hmm kept going, and individuals from all of this, right, 
And yeah. like people still doing things as young lords did a, a lot of stuff. Um, Chicago in particular, um, their moment seemed kind of gone. And I don't know enough to do the rest of it real justice. A lot of Chicago young lords sort of move into the electoral sphere. Uh-huh. Are involved in getting, I think, I want to say Chicago's first black mayor elected. Oh, wow. Like 10 years later or so. It's not in the script, so I don't have the numbers in front of me. A ton of them stayed really radical and keep kept doing good work. I don't really want to linger on their fall. I want to stay with most of what they yeah, did. Yeah. But I will mention one of the young lords, one of their lawyers who helped them out a lot. He went on to become a famous man. Oh, no. I know oh. who you're talking about. <laughs> the Republican oh. Fox News host. Oh, my God. Her name, his name is Geraldo Rivera. Oh, my God. <laughs> I made so shaking my head. Shit. Shaking my fucking head. I prefer to remember Juan Gonzalez instead. Yeah. Co host of Democracy Now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And fucking, and your uncle who fucking quit. He yeah, got fired. Arnie. Yeah. Who's not actually related. Um, well, we're going to see about that. Okay. Okay. I'm scared of DNA websites, so I don't do that, but I'll yeah, do some. Fair. I'll do some Googling <laughs> yeah, and find him, write him a random email. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's like uh, every, there's some cliche I learned a long time ago that like every story is a tragedy if you don't know when to end it. Uh-huh. You know, because like all uh-huh. of us die, right? Everything passes. Yeah. But God damn, they got so much done. You yeah. Know? Yeah, and also there are so many of these members who, even if they didn't get famous or something, you know, they were still like incredible community activists and, yeah. you know, are doing or making amazing art. I, one woman um, made a really great documentary called Palante Siempre Palante. That's really great on YouTube. So yeah, they're still out there and they're still total badasses. Yeah. It's so fucking good i listened to a bunch of different interviews where you yeah you can still listen to interviews where like the guy who stole the van who's like yeah we stole the van and like the <laughs> woman who like staffed the table in the house in lincoln hospital and just was like every day i'm gonna sit in the butcher shop and let people tell me what's wrong here you know wow. like still alive like still fucking yeah well that's uh that's the young lord's that's the first four-parter I ever wrote. It's the second one we recorded. But um, I don't know. Any any other final? Well, no, I think we said it all. I guess, you know, for me, what I really took away from learning about the Young Lords is just is how important it was for them and it is for us to listen yeah. to the folks that live around us, to listen to people who... You know, if you're someone like me who's an artist, I think it's really important for me to listen to people who have to fucking work every day and or are <laughs> much older than me. Or, you know, I think that was something that I really inspired me about them is their ability in the beginning to listen to their community about what they wanted and needed. Yeah. You know. I just like created a fucking to-do list and then just started checking boxes off. Seriously. Yeah. And also the berets were cool. Let's just oh, yeah. say it. No. <laughs> oh. 
and first organized by a 15 year old who was like i need fucking i need to like throw a bunch of dance shows to like make money to get us all cool black and cha-cha for the win yeah well if people want to listen to you i will say everyone should go listen to the song palente you should look it up on youtube so you can watch the video um p-a-l-e-n-t-e i don't know where the apostrophe is p-a-l-a-n-t-e a-n-t-e yeah apologize yeah there's a great a uh, music video directed by my friend Chris Merck, who's an incredible director. My dad is in it, which is really cool to see cool. him pop up in there. And a lot of um, there's the Pedro Pietri, uh, an excerpt from his his poem, Puerto Rican Obituary. And I encourage anybody to just like go down the rabbit hole of like how much amazing stuff was created from this movement, like the New Rican Poets Cafe and stuff like that. Um, what's your new album called? Well, my new album, I just finished recording it. So I'm not going to reveal the name yet. Oh, I'm sorry. I timed this. Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, it's going to come out. I hope it comes out sometime next year. I haven't gotten the rough mixes back yet. So I'm going kind of crazy because I want to hear what I did. Okay. So this isn't Um, what you're about to tour on. No, I'm still touring on my last record. My last record is called life on earth. It came out last February and I'll be out there playing music like on the West coast in May. Um, and then in July, Oh yeah, I'm going to be playing Portland. Cool. In July, I'll be playing all around like the Midwest and stuff. Sick. Yeah. So come see us, buy some merch, help us out where it's tough out there. Hanging in there. <laughs> Hasn't been a good couple of years for career musicians. Is that what you're saying? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I get like, you know, a, gl- a glimmer of a penny anytime you listen to me on Spotify. So head over to Bandcamp. I encourage everyone to get get music off Bandcamp on Bandcamp Fridays. It really helps us. Yeah. I try and buy albums and then I I do a lot of my listening on Spotify but I like it's nice to also buy it you know yeah totally yeah it all helps yeah okay um what else can I pitch I'm gonna kickstart a tabletop role-playing game this summer wow I've been working on this tabletop role-playing game called Penumbra City for like 10 fucking years and I'm working with a really good crew of people uh, if you want to play uh, Gangs versus the God King tabletop role-playing game, you should check that out once it gets kickstarted. I think um, I don't want to. I know what dates I think we're going to kickstart it, but I don't want to say it. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to be wrong. Um, and then I'm going to be another tabletop role-playing game I'm writing for. Oh, that was not announced yet. Ah, stupid yeah. things with things and controlling information that's what i got and also my most recent book is escape from insel island and if you want quick adventure read it's very short book if you have a i get a lot of messages from people who are like i don't read much because i don't have the attention span for it anymore but i can read your books takes only a couple hours to read escape from insel island and you can be like i read a whole last book because it's about 100 pages long uh (laughs) and you can also get my friend Jamie's book called Raw Dogged. Raw Dog. Raw. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I'm leaving it like, in. Like, we're going to leave it in. We're leaving it in. Okay. Dog. 
Okay. You can get Jamie's book, which is about hot dogs. I don't know what you're talking about, Margaret. There's no double euphemism there. I'm fucking literally blushing. I think we gotta end the episode. It's over. (laughs) We're done. You did it. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.